I'm Josh White, and I'm here to talk with Joe Glenton, a former soldier who served in Afghanistan and who defied his orders, left the service, and became an anti-war activist. And we're here to discuss his new book, Veteranhood, Rage and Hope in an Ex-Military Life. To start off, I just wanted to ask you, what brought you to write Veteranhood at this time? And is this the sequel to your first book, Soldier Box, or is it actually quite a different book? I suppose it kind of is a sequel, sequel in a way, but it is a much more, it's a, I'll probably say it's a much more sophisticated book. I think Soldier Box was uh, angrier, and it was not long after I'd left the military via military prison, <laughs> a short stay. Um, um, and yeah, and it's it's the collation of that, of the 10 years or 12 years even since I um, started to develop politics, started to really think about what I was involved in, in terms of the military institution and in terms of British foreign policy. So yeah, I, th I think it's a much more sophisticated book, but I hope it has some of the same anger and piss taking for which I'm, which has become my brand over the years. <laughs> An indispensable part of your brand. Yes. Um, uh, for the sake of our listeners who may not know know your work, um, do you want to just quickly run us through what happened in during your time in Afghanistan and why you decided to leave? Yeah, so I went out in 2006. I joined the army in 2004. I went to Afghanistan in 2006. It was the first kind of reinvasion, if you like, of the South in, into um, the operation which culminated in Helmand province. We were actually in the province next door in Kandahar. Uh, but that was the uh, the kind of second Afghan or the second phase of the Afghan war, if you like, which was 2006 to 2014, um, which, as we now know, went really fucking well. <laughs> and it was a huge success. Um, uh, and I went out on operations. It wasn't really political particularly, but it became very clear to me that all the reasons we'd been given for going were lies. But we weren't going there to help little girls go to school or build infrastructure or stop the opium crop or help Afghans. In fact, our presence there became a lightning rod um, for the war, which it set the pattern up until 2014 um, of uh, lots of people dying uh, on both sides. Some people I know as well. Um, and so over the course of that first tour, I, you don't really have time on tour to think about these things. So pro probably the idea started to develop on tour that something was amiss here. Uh, and then afterwards, um, I started to really reflect on it um, and tried to, to go down the route of conscientious objection when they tried to redeploy me, which they didn't like, even though objection is a, is a contractual and legal right. Um, and so I ended up being AWOL for about 18 months. Um, I'd also got PTSD from the tour, um, went on the run in the grand old tradition, um, ended up in Australia for a bit came back a much more political being, I suppose, um, became very active in the anti-war movement as I was going, as I was being court-martialed uh, and ended up getting, I got nine months and I did five months with remission um, in a military prison. And then uh, after that, I wrote my first book, went to uni at the age of 28 um, and became a journalist. And to what extent is this book a response to the way ex-servicemen, or ex-service people, I should say, um, are often used by the right to shore up support for nationalism in the war? And thinking about the, the way the poppy has become uh, 
um, yeah. such a such a symbol in in British political discourse. It's almost like a loyalty oath. Def- those are definitely big currents within the book. I think the the kind of veteran um, veterans welfare stuff has been written about a lot, um, and so I'm really looking at the kind of cultural stuff. I mean, who who are veterans? What do they think? What do they want? Are they all either small C conservatives or kind of squadrismo type fascists who love shagging statues? Or is there something more nuanced and complex there? And I think there is. Um, but I definitely look at those things. I look at the the veteran as a as a kind of um, a figure, or rather a piece of ammunition in the culture war. Of the culture wars, which have developed and intensified over the ten years of my having left the military. Um, so all those things are um, I, I make an effort anyway to address all of those things in the book, uh, and and kind of I'm kind of looking for a way to be a veteran, I suppose, um, a kind of veteranhood which is humanist and rational, and also has existed. There are lots of people who've been through the military meat grinder and the experience of war uh, who've been left wing radicals and have contributed to to society in more positive ways than just turning up to everything with a can of special brew wearing a fucking beret <laughs> you know there are these people do exist and they have existed and so i try and pay my dues to the my forebears i suppose veterans on the left from the partly debate to now i think past interviews you've talked about the different kind of uh, politics that are associated with i suppose different generations of veterans um, I, I recall uh, you commenting on uh, Northern Irish veterans or veterans of the British veterans of the Troubles, I should say, um, mm. and how their politics are, are often like the most reactionary or can be the most reactionary. And I was wondering, where would you situate most veterans who have come out of Afghanistan and Iraq? It's still contested, mm. I think. I think the Northern Ireland veteran... Uh, the Northern Ireland generation. I mean, I know some guys, some good guys who, who are in Northern Ireland uh, who ended up with, broadly speaking, the same politics as me. And the Falklands is the other. But but the Falklands and Northern Ireland generation, they are basically the same generation, um, are deeply reactionary. Uh, if you go onto their, the various ex-military Facebook groups with names like I wear my British Armed Forces badge with pride and Veterans for Veterans UK and all this kind of stuff, they're absolute sewers. Of, of racism, of bigotry. But the current generation are a little bit different. I mean, millennial veterans are very different. Um, and, and obviously there's that generational difference. A lot of the North, really toxic Northern Ireland guys are boomers. It's not mm. to say all boomers are bad, I don't really buy into that. But um, some of the stuff that goes with boomers goes with that generation. They're boomer veterans. But they're, they're more militarised, obviously, in some ways, more vicious. So, yeah, I, I mean, it, part of the book is looking at a kind of whether we will end up with a bitter, whether there's a bitter ex-military future, whether we will end up like those cohorts of veterans and just be really fucking angry and blame everything on Shamima Bagot and BLM. Imagine all, all our problems in our life stem from people like that. Um, or it will be something else. I mean, obviously, millennials are politically a very different generation. And it's funny because boomers flags off, but of course millennials fought the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. <laughs> it always strikes me as strange. Um, yeah. So yeah, I'm trying to I'm trying to unpick some of that. There are lots of forces at play, which will which may dictate that. 
Um, like at the, at the moment, there's a, there's a new drive, for example, to get the younger generation of veterans to do the poppy selling um, and stuff like that, um, which on the face of it is quite innocuous. But one of my arguments in the book is that certain organisations and individuals, so your Johnny Mercer type politician mm. and your Royal British Legion Health for Heroes, of course they do things for veterans, but they're also, they can be understood as a, as hegemonic institutions. They offer leadership. Um, they fold veterans inside them. Um, and one of the original founding concepts of the Royal British Legion from Hague, Field Marshal Hague, which of the song was that the men should be back under their officers um, because there's this concept which runs through British history. We have a very strange relationship with our armed forces of um, people coming back from war, trained for violence, highly organised and angry. This idea of masterless men who are terrifying terrifying to the ruling class the idea that these men would come back from the first second world war from the napoleonic wars um or from wars in iraq and afghanistan and be a menace uh, and start challenging notions of property or or, or uh, mainstream parliamentary democracy and start um, doing a you know really really trying to re-envision the world which suit their class and so it, it kind of depends on what whether people are willing to be folded into those hegemonic institutions like the RBL, and whether they're willing to be led by people like Johnny fucking Mercer and Dan Jarvis and even Clive Lewis. I mean, it's interesting that the most prominent veteran in left politics, however you, how you define that, you know, will vary, is a, is a former officer. Clive Lewis was an officer and he was in the TA, he was a reservist officer. Um, interesting. So I'm trying to suggest in the book that actually we should lead ourselves the officers and military charities, which are reactionary um, and very conservative, shouldn't be organising veterans' lives for us that we, can you imagine, we could do it ourselves and, and, and do it in line with our class because most ex-military people are from working class backgrounds. And there, there have been episodes where, where that has happened. There have been attempts to do that in the past, particularly after the First World War, veterans' unions and so on. But at the moment, it's all contingent. I mean, we don't know how the millennial generation of veterans, where they will end up politically. Lots of them also are, are deeply reactionary and embittered, so it's a hard call. I'm guessing the the idea of unionising uh, servicemen or service people or ex-service people is a big part of the book. Yes. Yeah. We do talk about it, about it. It's, um, there are problems with it. I, I'm completely, completely romantic about the idea. I want to see legions of Tommy Atkins and Jack Tars, you know, discharged soldiers and sailors kicking doors in and founding an anarchist republic. I want to see that. I don't know if it's on the cards um, because lots of the ex-military community, as I said, are deeply conservative uh, and are drawn into all kinds of bullshit, self-help, Jordan Peterson, influencer shit. Lots of, there are lots of veterans who are grifters who sell their racist coffee and their shit T-shirts. And lots of people are drawn into this kind of self, neoliberal self-help Stuff. Also, I think a key issue with the First and Second World War, after which there was a lot of radicalism, they had demobilisation to organise around, which in the First World War was done particularly slowly and badly. It made lots of people very angry, so there was a live issue. And of course, that's very different when you're talking about a professional army, which is tiny compared to the, the militaries of the First and Second World War, where the militaries were millions strong. And now we have... Um, an increasingly small, professional, culturally very backwards military 
uh, which is not conscripted. I mean, there is a degree, there's an economic conscription, of course. Uh, they aggressively target poor areas of Britain yeah. and other parts of the world, but um, very different kind of terrain that we have to fight over. So I don't know if that can be done. What I will say is that lots of military people, ex-military people I know, are all precisely where they should be. They are already involved in Scottish independence, northern separatism, the, the radical wing of the Labour Party, what's left of it, anarchism, communism, trade unionism. Um, so they, they are there and they might be spread out, but I think they are where they should be given the balance of forces. So there is some hope. There is some hope, yeah. And look, but there's also a thing that I think veterans on the right are really keen to let you know they're veterans. It's a very powerful identity for them. And I think the veterans on the left, for various complex reasons, don't want to be have that have veteran in their bio and go on about it. Because let's be honest, it is really fucking cringy. It's really cringy to do that, to be like to lead with what regiment you're in. And I don't think there is attached to a military identity. It's it's uh, as people are on the right. Um, and so it's a question about whether it's even something we can organise around. That might change. I don't know. I, I, I didn't come to an answer, but I interviewed a number of people in the book, people much more sensible than me and less likely to romanticise the idea of a, um, the NUX, the National Union of Ex-Servicemen 2.0, who seem to think, and I think they're probably right, that it, it isn't the right moment for that. But, of course, that could change. You've touched upon uh, the interwar and post-war unions of, I suppose, veterans. Uh, what, what happened to those unions? Those unions, um, of which there were four major ones, some of which were really radical. The National Union of Ex-Servicemen had some kind of communistic leanings. Um, others were closer to the Labour Party or the Liberal Party. And the Officers Association obviously was posh, full of posh people, officers. Um, and the Comrades of the Grey War was basically fascist it was funded by the rothermeers another newspaper baron the name escapes me um, and even it claimed to be non-political uh, even though i believe the foreign secretary at the time sat in on the inaugural meeting and it was very much the establishment's organization of choice the more radical ones i think kind of kind of like veterans today they didn't really want to trade off the fact they were veterans they wanted to organised as part of the working class. And it's important to remember that there were stronger traditions of trade unionism then than there are today, obviously. So people kind of knew how to organise and they could, they could do that much more coherently, I think. Uh, but in the end, these were all outmanoeuvred, faded, and were folded into the Royal British Legion. So all these different groups with very different ideas about imperialism and capitalism um, were eventually folded into the Royal British Legion. It's a strange thing to think that the Royal British Legion has um, has radical origins, has mm. these really radical origins, both of the left and right. And it's also, I mean, it's also interesting that uh, I can't remember the exact figure. It's in the book. Only one in twenty or one in ten, I can't remember, of my head, veterans of the Great War ever joined it. And it's not entirely clear why that is, except there was a trade union leader at the time who I quote quote in the book who talked to who seems to infer there was an attitude that the Royal British Legion, Legion, they were called Hague's White Guards. They were seen as the establishment charity and the establishment kind of framework for organising veterans. And it didn't sit well with a lot of working class veterans that they should be back under their offices and do what they're told and be content with nursing a pint in the Royal British Legion bar. And so it is a, 
are very interested in contested history. And also the Royal British Legion. It's very, the Royal British Legion, I, very, I, read, I used to lend on a very frank but very um, conservative history of the Royal British Legion. We talked about how the Royal British Legion elements within it wanted to break the, ni- the 1936 strike. They um, were against foreign workers. They wanted to get any job that a foreign worker had. They wanted a British veteran to have. There was a woman journalist on the BBC how they managed to get pushed out because they said a man should have that job and a veteran should have that job. So there is a deeply, um, deeply reactionary organisation historically that we tend to look at it as a fairly benign kind of uh, monolithic organisation which just kind of looks after remembrance and looks after the old boys and stuff like that. And I suppose we're, we're circling the issue of how we should really uh, see the politics of the military as an institution. You have clear divisions between left and right on this, I think, um, at least at least right now. Um, certainly the right has its own take on the military and using it as a symbol for nationalism. Meanwhile, many progressive and left-wing people would be tempted to see the army in a similar way to, the, to how they view the police, i.e. Yeah. this kind of violent force that's deployed for control, for... Uh, various various ends, usually quite negative ends. Where do you where do you stand on the politics of the military? Well, uh, the, the, I would say the institution is right wing. Mm. The people, many of them probably are conservative in mm. my estimation, but many other people are not. And I've met hundreds. I've been surprised about how many veterans I've met um, who don't advertise themselves as ex-military who are on the left. And I mean the whole gamut from social democracy to the most punchy anarchists you could ever meet. Sometimes, as a result of their service, that, that's what. And we should remember that the militaries, national militaries, have also always produced um, revolutionaries and radicals of different kinds. There's lots of radical people who learned how to organise and learned how to shoot straight in the ranks of a national military. We should never forget that. I think the right believes the military belongs to it, and the kind of centre left basically reproduced that. Even Corbyn had to reproduce the kind of an American veteran called it troop fucking or veteran signalling, where you, if, if you say anything in Parliament, it's now um, required. Uh, if you say anything about the military, you should tee it up with, and we love the troops and we thank our fucking servicemen and all this stuff. So even people on the left in Parliament have to do that. The further left is slightly confused. I think there's a temptation either to do that, to do that, to go with almost parliamentary protocol, leg pipe protocol, where you have to like veteran signal, that's what I've called it, veteran signalling, or there's a, a further part of the left who I am pretty withering about in the book, posers, left posers, I call them correctly, I think, who are like anybody who's in the military is basically a fascist. And both of those approaches to the military are completely wrong in my mind. And they're not based on any kind of rational humanist analysis of what many people do. And, and as you say, many people kind of alight rather lazily, in my opinion, on the notion that the military are basically the cops being green. And I don't think that adds up either. I mean, I make the point, um, when you go to Britain's town centres, how many people huddled in fucking doorways who are homeless clutch signs saying homeless former policemen? None. You won't see any, but you'll see a lot of veterans in the same situation. Uh, and that's because the relationship of the squaddy and I don't mean officers, I don't care about them. I disparage them throughout the book because I don't like the posh. Damn the posh. 
has a totally different relationship to capitalism in the state than a copper. They're recruited from a different cohort of people. They're paid differently. They're pensioned differently. They're trained differently for a different job. There are occasions when the military is called to do a policing role, such as in Northern Ireland, when it was effectively deputised to the police. And it's always a role the military is extremely bad at because it's not what it's trained to do. Policing is not really what it's trained to do. It's kind of an additional thing. The army's, and, and it's important in the soldierly mind, you're trained to fight wars, um, not police things. And it's a very, it's a very different, I go at length into why these two things are different and why they shouldn't be conflated. It's not to say there isn't some crossover, both are violent state institutions. Of course they are. I also know many people leave the military and go into the police. I mean, there's a fast track, uh, as there is into a lot of civil service type stuff. So there is some crossover. But to conflate the police and the military, I think, is, is just wrong. It's just wrong and inaccurate, and I don't buy it. But I also understand why people do it. I think it's, it, there's an urge to, and it's a lazy urge, it's idleness, I think, to, you can just write off a bunch of people as inaccessible to you. And you don't really have to worry about them. If you say, oh, vet soldiers are just cops, then you can just like dismiss them. Whereas actually, the military, has, as I say, has always produced radical people. Has always produced them, you know. Uh, and I, I'm evidence of that. And I know lots of other people in this country now who, um, who, uh, who learned how to, or, you know, develop their politics and a critique of capitalism, imperialism and hierarchies uh, in the military. So they shouldn't be dismissed.